Hey everyone, great to have you back listening to the show. Uh, today's episode is one from the archives. It's a replay of episode 8 with Douglas Fry on the anthropology of war. This is a kind of uh, the last, or in a sense, the first episode in a trilogy on the anthropology of war. For the other ones, just check the two previous ones, so episode 24 and episode 25. But more importantly, this is something that we referred to a lot in the previous conversation with Brian Ferguson. These really go together. And uh, although I know that it's available in the archives, I thought it might be nice to put it here again in your feeds. And more generally, I've just been thinking for a while that it would be nice to every once in a while post uh, something from the archives because so many of you have joined only recently. And it's really wonderful to see that so many of you have joined recently. But I'm worried that you might miss some, uh, some gems from the past. And this was a very special episode. It was one of the first ones that I ever recorded. And I, I'm so grateful for Douglas Fry to actually uh, having faith in the program, coming live on the show before the show was live itself. And we've kept in touch, and I really appreciate his work. And I've thought about this episode a lot, so I'm happy to just put it out there again. On the other hand, it's also nice to see <laughs> for myself that the audio quality has improved. Um, the new microphone does help, the new software does help, etc., etc. So, uh, So we're making progress here. If you like the work that I'm doing here, please do consider becoming a supporter. If you do think that these episodes are worth, say, a cup of coffee per episode, then... I post two or three per month. You can kind of calculate a, a correct sum from there based on your local rates. Anyway, you will find a link to my Patreon account in the show notes. Thank you so much for considering. And I hope that you enjoy this episode from the archives with Doug Fry. Welcome to the On Humans podcast. This is your host, Ilari Mekel. Winston Churchill once said, the story of human race is war. Besides brief and precarious interludes, there has always been war. And before history began, murderous strife was universal and unending. Indeed, Churchill lived through two world wars and many smaller wars. Our newspapers and history books are rife with war. But how natural is this for the human race? Was Churchill right about the times before history being filled with unending strife? Recently, science has been evoked in support of this notion. Stephen Pinker, in his best-selling Better Angels of Our Nature, presented statistics which supposedly proved Churchill's point. According to Pinker, we basically know that Pleistocene humans, that is humans living over 12,000 years ago, lived in a state of almost continuous war. Indeed, Pinker explicitly aligned himself with Thomas Hobbes, the early modern philosopher, who claimed that humans in a state of nature live lives which are, quote, nasty, brutish, and short. However, Pinker's statistics have come under an array of devastating criticisms. And this leaves many people interested in this question, such as myself, quite lost on the sea, so to speak. It left me wondering, what do we really know about the question? Is war indeed eternal, perhaps like hunger? Or is it a modern development, perhaps like riding and agriculture? Could it even be something like chattel slavery, which emerges relatively late in human history and could one day be on its way out? To discuss this question, I have Douglas P. Fry on the show. Fry is an anthropologist and one of the world's leading scientists on this question. And despite starting off with the same hopes and assumptions as Churchill and Pinker, his research has led him to a very different conclusion. I will let him tell why. But one of the major themes that hovers throughout the conversation is that war does not go forever back, at least according to Fry. But neither is it something that is always a product of agriculture. Some hunter-gatherers do wage war. Yet most do not. And there is a pattern to it. I will let Fry explain this pattern. If you struggle with the many scholars and ethnic groups that we mentioned in this conversation, don't worry about it. You can either let them sleep, it doesn't make a difference to the argument, or consult the show notes, which has a full list of them. 
This was an exceedingly clarifying conversation for me, and I really enjoyed it. I hope that you enjoy it too. I bring to you Douglas P. Fry. Professor Douglas Fry, welcome to the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. During the last two decades, uh, you've become an eminent critic of what we might call neo-Hobbesian theories on the origins of war. Before we get into that critic, would you like to give your kind of take on what exactly are the neo-Hobbesian theories of war? What are these theories that you're criticizing? I, I think actually it goes back quite a ways before Hobbes. And basically this is a view that there's always been war, always will be war, that there's something in the nature of humanity that inclines us towards war. And therefore the usual implication is sometimes explicit, sometimes implicit is that there's not much we can really do about war. So I, I critique and take on basically that, that whole package of Western thinking. Now, so it goes back before Hobbes. I mean, the ancient Greeks, some of them were philosophizing along these lines back then. And you can draw as Marshall Solomons once did a nice uh, historical continuity across 2000 years of Western civilization of this type of view of humanity, you know, including the idea of uh, original sin in there as part of the mix. And, and Solomons also pointed out that in the foundation of the United States, many of the founders of the country held such beliefs about the inevitability of, of warfare and so forth. So uh, happy to be talking about this in whatever detail you'd like me to talk about, but it's had a huge influence and continues to have a huge influence, often at the sort of unconscious level as to how it affects our thinking about human nature, our past, our present, and the potentials for a future that would have less war or hopefully no war ultimately. Well, I guess this is a good time to ask then, what is your view briefly about the origins of war? Uh, okay. You said briefly, and I know we're going to talk a lot about this in detail. So I'll try to give you my, you know, 200 word abstract take on this one. My take is that war, as we're used to calling it, is not really very old in the history of the species. And there's a whole variety of, of different reasons for reaching this conclusion. A unique aspect here to my thinking, and I say unique because none of the Neo-Hobbesian folks have actually responded or picked up or taken this seriously. And I, I first started writing about this in a book that came out in 2006, The Human Potential for Peace. And what I'm saying here is if you start looking at sequences, archeological sequences around the planet, you find again, a pattern of no war at some point fading into war and, and then outright sometimes very bloody chronic warfare. And you see this archeologically, and that would be an origin of war. It's you know, singular an origin of war for the Northwestern origin of war in ancient Oaxaca in Mexico or an origin of war among the Calusa people of, of Florida. And what you see is that, you know, every place has its unique factors of environment and culture and so forth. That's taken as a given, but the overall patterns that you see, um, tell us that war comes in under particular sets of preconditions. There are these preconditions and there's overall patterns that show when war is likely to come in. And we see it archeologically around the planet. And what are those preconditions? It's really like a a complex of, of conditions, population increase, which then requires extracting resources more intensively out of the environment. And the one way to do this is through agriculture. And another one, which may be a bit surprising or new to some of your listeners is by harvesting aquatic resources. In a nutshell, there's two different paths towards 
complexity and towards war. When I say complexity, there is a cluster of, of complexity features. Settling down is one of them. A development of a social hierarchy that's strongly developed or partially developed is another one. A uh, population increase that comes with settling down, producing more food. And sometimes in the hierarchy, you even get slavery, but, but not always. But the point is, it's a dramatic shift in social organization from before people settle down, their population increases, and they start extracting more resources out of the environment. And that's an egalitarian type of model. So these are huge changes. And what you see in the archaeological sequences and what you also see in, in existing cultures, if you use them as a rough analogy to what happened in the past, is you see war coming in. And I, I think it, it might be helpful if I just take a few minutes and just give a, you know, a couple of example sequences to this thing. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yes. Archaeologist Herbert Nashner looked at a particular area of the Northwest coast and he had an archaeological sequence where he started 11,000 years ago. And first he described that there was, looking at skeletons, there was some evidence of aggression, but it tended to be non-lethal aggression. And he reached a conclusion that these were probably non-lethal fights and certainly not warfare. But then over time. You get, again, this increase of population, you get people starting to settle down and there he started finding out that, you know, the, the aggression increased and the lethality increased. But when you finally get just in the last 2000 years or so coming right up to the present, you get the dramatic shift where all of a sudden there are villages, there's a, a vast increase in, in taking aquatic resources out of the sea to support more population. And you get defensive sites for these villages. And you, and you find a, a lot of evidence for warfare in the skeletal material. People are being killed in, in mass. So that's an example, you know, a concrete example from a particular area of how you see the sequence of no war through some war coming in. And then definitely, clearly this is war in an archeological picture. So that's, that's one example. I'm just going to mention the Calusa of, of Florida because I've been reading about them just this last week or two. It's a fascinating, um, yeah, sure. Go ahead. What I learned is only about 2,700 years ago did Florida's environment become pretty much like it is now. And I'm talking specifically about southwestern Florida, which is south of St. Petersburg, Tampa, if, if you know the, the Florida geography, yeah, going down towards the Everglades. Now, for instance, Fort Myer is right there in the heart of it. And just outside of Fort Myers, Florida, is a place called Mound Key. And this was the center of, of a hunting gathering fishing society that was in existence when the Spanish first showed up in the 1500s. The Spanish were not greeted with a warm welcome. The first thing that happened is, is that 20 canoes of warriors paddled out and started to fight with, with them. And the next day, the, the admiral of the, the fleet wanted to, you know, make peace and try to get off onto a better start. So he invited the head person, whoever this was, turned out to be a the person the Spanish dubbed as Carlo, which was probably more like Caluso. He invited the person to, to come on out to the ships, you know, let's shake hands and work something out. So instead of being met by 20 canoes the next day, 80 canoes filled with warriors showed up and a battle ensued all day. So things got off to a rocky start, to put it mildly. But the point is, these folks did not have agriculture. The Calusa were totally subsisting on marine resources. And recent archaeology is showing a very intriguing set of, of ideas, which are pretty supported, I think, as to how they did this. On this, this key, it's an island, different name for an island. There was a central canal running through and they made aquatic fish tanks to both sides of the canal so that they could literally herd large schools of fish through the canal and deviate them off into these 
basically, you know, fish storage containers, fish storage, supersized swimming pools, which were not very deep, but then they have this abundance of, of food and so forth. And so what I learned the other day as I'm, I'm reading up about this was that things changed really pretty dramatically about 2,700 years ago. Prior to this, that part of Florida had no real water resources on land. Um, but there were some groups toward Northern Florida that, that were living there, very small populations. But as the climate became more like it is now and the sea level, which was rising, slowed down and sort of stabilized, a water table also rose up providing water as a resource. And at that point, then people started extracting these, these marine resources out of Southwest Florida in great abundance. And their population just took off like crazy. And you can see archeologically how, you know, there used to be small wandering bands and then there were small villages and then there were larger villages. Food was in abundance. And lo and behold, we have on Mount Key, these, these two towering structures, mounds, that one of them is about 30 feet high. That's an awful lot of building of <laughs> sand and dirt and shells and everything with a huge building on top of it, sort of the royal palace, so to speak. So this is very, very unusual behavior for the stereotypical idea of what is a, a hunter-gatherer or a hunter-gatherer fisher folk. And again, guess what? You know, warriors and war canoes by the time the Spanish show up, this was a progression, again, a similar type of sequence where you had small hunter and gathering mobile vans that were relatively egalitarian, did not settle in one place. They had more camps, then to small villages, then to more people, then to more marine extraction, then to actually engineering the aquatic environment so that they would have fish collecting um, tanks and, and their technology improved to harvest a whole variety of different marine resources. This has got to be like one of the most rich marine resources on the planet, which is the, the, the ecological superstructure that allowed them to develop complexity. So, so it's not a question of when was the origin singular of war, but it's a question of what are the primary conditions which interact with each other, which ultimately make war not inevitable, but make it much more likely. So Calusa, again, they, they, they follow this pattern in their heyday, just before the Spanish arrived, they were ex extracting tribute from neighboring groups around different parts of Southern Florida. They had a, a military class, which apparently were not gathering their own food. Other people did that for them. And of course, the nobility who were in charge of, of the whole thing. So it's, it's a pattern of how war comes in. So it's, it's not a mystery like, oh gosh, I wonder when war came in, is you start looking around the planet where there's good archeology. span you start to see these recurring themes. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm just a little bit simplifying, but not greatly simplifying. So you start to see the same patterns uh, across the sites. And this is one of the, the, the points I said at the beginning, that the, the people who are just presuming or even outright arguing that war went back very far. Some people say it went back millions of years to when humanity split apart from the, the apes, when we had a common ancestor with the ancestors of bonobos and chimpanzees and so forth. And, and they just more presume that than, than anything else. That's not an argument, right? You, you get such arguments going down that path, such as, well, look, chimpanzees have been observed to attack and kill members of the neighboring group and humans certainly sometimes attack and kill members of the neighboring group. So therefore war goes all the way back millions of years. I did want to ask you about this. So, um, when I was talking about your work the other day to my partner, she's trained in biology. And she felt very responsive at first, but then she did also say in the way one about Jane Goodall, you know, the, the classic story of Jane Goodall goes to 
is able to observe chimpanzees in the wild for the first time, and at some point observes so-called gombe wars, uh, which look like, if not warfare, then some kind of proto-warfare amongst these chimpanzee groups. And, um, you know, she wasn't there searching for the origins of war with a neo-Hobbesian intuition. She seems to have been very disappointed, in a sense, about this finding. So it's kind of, I think it's quite understandable why people reason well, you know, the chimpanzees do it. Anybody who reads newspapers or history knows we can do it. Probably there's a link. So what's your take on that, that kind of reasoning? Well, as, as I was saying, you know, at least this argument of chimpanzees do it, humans do it, chimpanzees and humans are closely related. Therefore, it goes back to where, you know, pick, pick the number. We're not exactly sure. Six million years, seven million years to the common ancestor. That's a very fallacious argument. For one thing, bonobos are simply left out of that more often than not, or in some way just sort of brushed aside, mentioned and, and ignored. So what we have basically are three sibling species that, that are currently alive, right? Humans, bonobos, and chimpanzees. And bonobos in the wild or captivity have, have not been observed to kill is very different from the chimpanzee pattern. They're just not the same type of stalkers and killers uh, the chimpanzees have the capacity to do, put it that carefully that way. Um, so that's one point to make clear. My take, I have several takes, is that if you want to understand humans, it's really more important to actually look at humans. I made that argument in Human Potential for Peace and another book, Beyond War, and so forth. Well, let's focus on humans then again and bracket the chimpanzee bonobo issue. I think the story of Florida was actually very clarifying in that there is a way that people often make a distinction, for example, oh, let's compare state societies versus non-state societies, or let's compare pair hunter-gatherers to non-hunter-gatherers and then kind of expect every tribe that the European colonies meet to be either peaceful or warlike or every single hunter-gatherer to be either peaceful or warlike. And would it be fair to say that the argument is not that non-state societies don't wage war and state societies do, for example. It is specifically that small-scale egalitarian hunter-gatherer bands that we presume to represent kind of ninety-five percent of human evolutionary history, that they tend to be peaceful and not warlike. Is that a correct characterization? Yes, I, I personally have not used this dichotomizing that that some folks like Pinker has brought in. I don't think that's such a useful division or classification. But I totally agree with your summation there about the nomadic forager bands, also called nomadic hunter-gatherers, uh, and. and called immediate return economies. You know, there's different labels, but what we're getting at, as you said, is the sort of oldest type of human society that was band driven for the most part. So we're, we're finding out more and more about this all the time, nicely. In 2013, one of my, my Finnish colleagues, Patrick Sudeberry, and I took a look at the nomadic forager groups. And we looked at what type of lethal aggression they have. This, this was published in the journal Science back in 2013. Um, basically, we, we were able to reach a pretty clear conclusion that for this type of, of ancestral society, we had a sample of 21 of them that we didn't choose. It's a, I go into that. A, I mentioned this because there's been so much cherry picking of groups in this area that we tried to do a cleaner methodology and not pick our own societies. Yeah, I do want to get to the cherry picking, but um, but yeah, it's a great article, so please please go ahead. 
So, I mean, the overall conclusion is that most of the aggression, the lethal aggression that you see at this type of social organization is very interpersonal. And sometimes it's a little wider than that, like would involve a, a family group against another family group. And only very rarely does it involve what we would label warfare. And then there's even like a footnote to that last part. For example, five of our instances of uh, so-called warfare, where it was a group of people on one side, group of people on the other side, various bodies after the conflict. It, it turns out it was between the Hadza people of East Africa and neighboring herding societies. And so there weren't herders, you know, back in the Pleistocene. And there, there was a reason culturally, historically, why this was going on. The Hadza basically had their area and they hunted wild animals. Herders came in and it's much easier to kill a cow than, you know, to go stalking a, a wildebeest. So here's an easy game. So we'll kill this cow. And then that elicited feuding between these groups or warfare between these groups. Okay. So that's, that's understandable. It shows that, yeah, under some circumstances, nomadic foragers will engage in group on group aggression warfare, but this is not really giving us too many insights about what went on in the Pleistocene. If you say what I, if you see what I'm getting at. So our overall picture, we, um, broke it down as to, you know, whether there's one killer killing one person, or if there's more than one killer killing one person or then more than one killer killing more than one person and, and so on and so forth. And we really made this database. We, we published in the online material, all of the cases we looked at. So anybody can go there and read the description themselves and reach their own conclusion about what's going on in this case. So when you have situations like a husband kills his wife, that's not war. That's clearly interpersonal. If you have a report where, you know, a brother killed a brother or, or a father killed a son. These are close relatives, whether they're living in the same group at the moment or not, it's not warfare. So we, we tried our best to, to look at this across who's killing whom, how many bodies, is it a group thing or an individual thing? What are the reasons behind it and tease out membership of, of groups and so forth. Our overall conclusion, as I just said, was that most of this is interpersonal and then making life interesting out of 21 societies in our sample, there was one really anomalous society, the Tiwi of Australia. Yes. I wanted to ask about the Tiwi. One reviewer, you know, your article gets reviewed by anonymous reviewers. One reviewer said the Tiwi are a way out outlier. <laughs> I thought that was wonderful. That captures it exactly. So why were the Tiwi more warlike? What's your take on it? Yeah, my take that's, that's it. I was just going to say, you know, I, I have a take, but I don't have a definitive answer. But my take on this is a couple of things. So first of all, the Tiwi are very unusual for this type of social organization because they have subgroups, which could be called social segmentations, lineages, clans, in the case of the Tiwi, they have subgroup identifications. And what Patrick and I discovered as we looked at the cases is that there were strings of killings among the Tiwi, which we rarely saw elsewhere. If, if I'm remembering my details and I think I am, but you can always double check my count. It's in the article. I think we found what we, we've characterized as nine sets of string killings, meaning that one person is killed by a member of uh, another clan, and then they re reciprocate or retaliate and kill someone from that clan. And then yet again, someone else re retaliates and kills from the first clan, and it goes back and forth in a series of linked killings. And these could be as few as three, or they could be four, they could be five, et cetera. So if there were only nine of these across all 21 societies, again, check my, my recollection, but my recollection is there were seven of them that occurred 
in just one culture of Tiwis. And this was made possible because unlike almost all the other groups, they actually had clan structures. So it would vary back and forth, the tit for tat, which is a, a classic model of feuding, right? The Hatfields and the McCoys we talk about in hmm. the United States and hillbilly land, you know, but everybody I think understands the, the back and forth, the tit for tat of a feud. And that tended to happen because the Tiwi very atypically had this clan structure. So that's one level of explanation. Going off in a, a bit of a more theoretical bent, and I have very little evidence for this one, but we, we talked just a little bit about Calusa and the fact that they were able to support a larger population and so forth. And that, that led to more fighting and then eventually really a state organization with, with warfare. Well, the Tiwi may, might've been on the first step sort of in this direction. Again, rather speculation, my, my speculation in this point, because first of all, they lived on an island for the most part. So they didn't have infinite amounts of land to spread off to. Second, their population density was one of the highest population densities hmm. for the 21 um, societies in our sample. So you can start to envision that things might be getting tense here. The, the, the other factor on an island, so they have coasts, so they were able to use aquatic resources which probably allowed the population density to go higher. So if we start thinking about what are those critical precursors or the complexity complex where war can come in or more fighting in this case, we start to see that at least some of these are manifested in, in the Tiwi in sort of a preliminary way, if you see what I'm saying. I'm not by any way arguing that like they're a well-developed chiefdom. No, you know, they're still largely egalitarian, but it is very unusual that they had these clans for, for nomadic foragers. And it's also a bit unusual that they were circumscribed on a relatively small island and the population density was high. Again, I'm sorry to say, and I'm just being honest, it's, it's at this point sort of speculation land. It's a, be a great master's thesis or even a PhD thesis to really look into this in much more detail and much more care and really try to answer that question. Why was this going on with Tiwi? You mentioned cherry picking earlier. And I think one of the reasons why the, the science paper we just discussed is, is so important is that some cherry picking had, um, had happened before. When I've been reading critical reviews of uh, Steven Pinker's Better Angels of Our Nature, which is probably like the classic, almost like a textbook of the Neo-Hobbesian view on the matter, it really made me question my own desires. I mean, I, I would like to write popular science one day. I certainly want to consume this kind of popular science books, which draw evidence from all sorts of places. But then you see the amount of mistakes that uh, go into an account made by a person who's not explicitly trained in this field in archaeology or anthropology. And the evidence, I, I mean, I want to be as fair as possible to Pinker. I think he got much of his data from other people like Samuel Bowles. Uh, but uh, I think I learned from your book, War, Peace and Human Nature, that some of the highest amounts of killings that were recorded as hunter-gatherer warfare were Paraguayan ranchers murdering Aceh people, the indigenous Aceh people. And uh, it's not a light historical background for a small mistake. And I think it was just two years after Better Angels of Our Nature came up that, um, that the Acha people actually sued the Paraguayan government for genocide due to all the, the acts that have been committed against. And so, yeah, it just really made me sad. I just realizing like, these are very notable scholars. I, I mean, I just, is it inevitable that when you start venturing beyond your field, you will make this, this kind of mistake? I guess what I'm saying is that it really made me distrust popular science, popular human science more general. 
just to see how seductively clear the picture looked when reading Better Angels of Our Nature, chapter two, and then when actually you look deeper and realize that this data that goes into these seductively clear graphs is just completely meaningless. Yeah, you're, you're making really good points. And, you know, I would just encourage you, if you have in your future, the desire to write for a more popular audience and include material from different sources. Yes, you can do that. It's not inevitable that you're going to totally botch it, you know, but, but exercise more care. And, and one good trick that I've always tried to apply is to ask colleagues who are experts in different fields, would you please read this chapter or this part of this chapter? Or they generally don't want to read the entire book that you, <laughs> or is a book manuscript. But, but, you know, reach out to your colleagues who you respect and understand that they know something about this area to make sure that you're not making some silly mistakes. And here's, I think, where we, we see in the case of Steven Pinker and many others, looping back to where we started this discussion, that there are Hobbesian presumptions that people just have implicitly in their minds. They've grown up in a, a culture of, of Hobbes, and they just take these things as initial presumptions. I initially, and we're going back to late 90s, I just presumed that there always had been war. Why would there not have been war? There's war now. Look, it's all around. It's in uh, you know, traditional tribal peoples. I knew as an anthropologist, it's all around the geopolitical landscape. Why would there not have been war in the past? And my, my story goes that I, I read this article by a colleague, Leslie Sponsel, and Les Sponsel said, no, war's not very old. Basically came in, you know, more or less 10,000 years ago. There's no real evidence for it in human paleontology, and there's no archaeological evidence for it worldwide, much beyond 10,000 years ago. And my first reaction was, oh, Les, you've gone off the deep end. How embarrassing that you would make such an argument. That's, that's crazy. And I just sort of let that rattle around in my head part-time for a couple of weeks. And that, that's the key idea, you know, somewhere flashed in a neuron. Could he be right? Well, he's actually right. And, you know, the answer to these things is go back to the evidence. So I, I can be sympathetic of, of Pinker and, and others, you know, who, who just make presumptions. And I can also be critical of, come on, folks, you know, question these things. Be your own self-critic. What is your evidence base for actually concluding this? And granted, uh, what Pinker did to get some of his data tables there, figure two, for instance, is one of them in his chapter two, is he went to a book by Keeley and Lawrence Keeley, and he pulled some information out of that, archaeological uh, information for the most part. And then he went to Samuel Bowles, who also had drawn on Keeley and some other things and pulled some more archaeological data and pulled this eight so-called, so-called forager sample, and both of them were flawed original sources, but my perception is Pinker really liked it because it fit his preconceived notions of, of how the past and how nomadic forages were so warlike and so violent. So as you, as you mentioned, I've, I've critiqued in the first chapter of War, Peace, and Human Nature to some degree. I've, there's other things we could critique, but it, it, one of my most shocking discoveries there, as you mentioned, was to determine that the so-called rate of war deaths was actually the indigenous people being uh, the victims of genocide. And there were just two cases of that. There, were, there was also were included in this as well as the Aceh. So if you have a sample of eight and for two of them, you're not actually counting war at all. You're counting that the, the native indigenous peoples being the victims of being shot and killed in massacres by ranchers and 
farmers and foresters. That's just a travesty, right? And, and you had to dig for that, you know? So I understand Pinker, for example, doesn't have the, doesn't have the time or inclination or even the reason to go digging. It fits his, his model. So great. I'll grab it and use it, but it doesn't fit my model of what's going on. I go, this is crazy. I don't believe this. These numbers are off the charts. Something is wrong here. So with a different mentality, you know, thanks to Les Ansel in part, thanks to other things, you know, in intervening decades, I go in there and I dig what's going on. And, and I remember being there with my calculator and, and literally a ballpoint pen and writing on the book and trying to figure this mess out, which I eventually figured out. I go, voila, got it. Okay. This is bogus. And it's not there being bogus. It's, it's Sam Bowles coming in and pulling it out in a very misleading way, publishing it. And then Pinker coming, not even probably looking at the footnotes or anything going, oh, here we go. We got data. Great. I'll throw that in my book. So, you know, there's different <laughs> fill in the blanks as to how these types of things happen. Anyway, you don't have to, you don't have to commit those mistakes. You know, you, you can be a bit more self-evaluatory and, and look at things more carefully. And as I say, run it by trusted friends and colleagues who don't necessarily agree with you and see what they come up with. I want to try to be fair here because I know that one day I'll make a mistake that fits my preconceptions. But in a book that is explicitly a celebration of the power of the state to make people's lives better, yeah, you shouldn't make that mistake. Yeah, really, you really shouldn't. You, you can praise anybody who tries to pull in information from anthropology, archaeology, psychology, sociology, politics, history, and, and create a, a creative argument out of it. You know, some of the best books do this. And then if you want a really good book doing that, you really have to go the extra mile to make sure your facts are correct. And so I, I just, I, I know the anthropology chapter two, it's just really atrocious. Having talked about Pinker's very ill-supported claims that the hunter-gatherer lifestyle and nomadic egalitarian hunter-gatherers is nasty, brutish, and short due to warfare. Maybe we should highlight that, I mean, Pinker's argument is basically that violence has been going down, and especially during the past 500 years, and especially in Europe. Now, I found this argument for the last 500 years to be very convincing, I think. Anybody who spent time reading about the social history of the European 16th century, for example, will realize that there was, there was a level of violence, which is just very intolerable from the point of view of, of, of our perspective. And I think it's just good maybe to underline that it's, it's not necessarily that we disagree with his argument wholesale. It's just that the trajectory, the shape of the trajectory might be different. So one story, Pinker's story is that violence was tremendously high in the past, and it's just been coming gradually down and down and down. And then the alternative view is that I think the one you've been presenting is perhaps something like an up and down scale where it started being relatively low and went higher due to the emergence of clans, different early stage, etc., And then it might've been coming down again. Would that be a fair summary? So basically for the past 500 years, you might be in complete agreement with Pinker. I, I don't know if you are, but at least based on our discussion so far, you, you might be right. Yes. I guess I could add a few nuances as I see it anyway. So I, I agree with you. My main beef with Pinker on this particular issue is that he just presumes that there's a high level going backwards, high level of killing, mm -hmm. warfare, violence going backwards. And I think for reasons we've been talking about, 
archaeology really does not support that at all. So as I think you just alluded to, as I see it over prehistory, vast stretch of period history, we have a relatively low level of violence and an ano- war would be an anomaly if it ever existed at all. But then as you get war coming in very recently, again, as we've discussed how that can happen in different places at different times, you get an increase. And then very recently, you can get a, a decrease in, in violence. But, you know, it's, it's not exactly that simple either, because nowadays we're living with such inequality around the planet that are we just talking about physical killings or are we talking about social systems that are actually causing death and misery of a whole lot of people just due to the fact of the, the injustices, you know, literally lack of, of health care, lack of sufficient water that's clean water and diet and all of this, you know, so-called structural violence is another way to put it. It's just not really considered in Pinker's argument. I hear the point being made quite often about how Pinker focuses only on the dead bodies when he records this, uh, this drop in violence, even counting for the world wars, that the probability of dying of violence in the 20th century was, was very low um, relative to many past centuries. And uh, then people respond like you did, sometimes talking about yes, but there's, for example, structural violence also, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it's a fair point, but my gut reaction, my unresearched gut reaction is that, yes, but there was more of it 300 years ago or 500 years ago or 100 years ago. I mean, from slavery to violence against women in marriages. Yes. Uh, I, was, I was actually recently reading a short piece by historian Ian Mortimer, mm-hmm. and uh, he was listing his favorite books in historical fiction. Uh, and what he said in, in a preface to this list was, he doesn't really care whether the historical representation is completely accurate. Um, and he said, quote, if you started to be accurate in a historical novel, you'd lose all your modern readers because you'd have to insist on so much deference, so much hierarchy. You'd have to insist on such a high level of cruelty in society. Society was fundamentally violent and fundamentally sexist. We couldn't possibly tolerate anything that reflected that accurately. <laughs> and uh, Mortimer has been mainly writing about the last thousand years, especially in Britain. And uh, my, uh, my reaction is, that, well, he's probably right. <laughs> and to the extent that he is right in this description, I think Pinker has basically just put numbers on that trajectory. And whether we agree with it or not, I just feel it's good to highlight that the discussion we are having is not necessarily an argument against this aspect of his work. It's more about this presumption that war related deaths were incredibly high, deep in the human past and have the, been there, you know, war going forever back. There was an article that came out in 2016 by a, a group of Spanish researchers. And mm. this basically corroborates, you know, where, where people were going with this in one hand and, and not at all in the, the sense of high level of violence. So it's an interesting mix, which I think you'd like to take a look at. It's by Gomez et al., I can send you the reference if you'd like to take it. That would be great. But the the first thing that, well, not the first thing, but one of the things that they point out is that the the level of lethal violence is very much linked to the type of society, to social organization. So, for instance, chiefdoms are are a hierarchical society, right? They're definitely more violent than nomadic foragers. And then they go archaeologically, archaeological evidence for foragers is actually less violent than so-called historical foragers. And, and I think at least my interpretation to that one, I'm not sure if they gave an interpretation is, well, the historical foragers have been subjected to all the world events of colonialism. You know, just think Ache or Hiwi, as we were just talking about as just one of the various examples. 
So you get disruptions of all sorts. You get introduction of weapons. You get introduction of alcohol from the outside world. You get crowding and displacement and so on and so forth. So at least that, that finding makes sense to me. But their overall point is that you do get differences in the level of violence, depending on what type of society you're looking at. And states, you know, Ola Pinker tend as a group to have less violence than chiefdoms and, and so on. So, okay, there's a pattern there that you could look at and say, well, this sort of matches Pinker. So yeah, there's some support for his overall idea at that end, but not, you notice for the point that the nomadic foragers, hunter gatherers, you know, going back in the past would have been more violent. Uh, the, the other point, which I find interestingly, so here's another little anecdote that actually is, is true. This article came out and it created a, a nice splash with the regular media and so forth. I was asked to comment on it, which, which I did for a couple of, you know, sources and so forth. So certainly Pinker was also asked to comment on this interesting article. Now, now let me explain. First of all, the main finding about this as it pertained to, to humans was that humans are typical, what you would expect in a biological prediction as to how much lethal aggression within the species you would predict given that we're primates and social primates. And that's the prediction is 2%. And looking across all these different types of societies, some historical, some archeological, some current day and cross-culturally, we'll use a lot of different samples. They find exactly humans are on the expectation. We're not more violent than you would expect for our primate position in the taxonomy. 2% is quite low. It is quite low, exactly. I don't think we mentioned these percentages, but what we were talking about earlier with Pinker and Bowles, they come up with these much higher predictions. One is 14, one's 15, depending on whether you're looking at their archeological sample or their forager sample. Okay. So the, the story, which really tickled my funny bone was that here comes this study. The main conclusion is humans are right on what you'd expect. 2%. Pinker has just argued it's 14 or 15%. Pinker proclaims, absolutely supports my conclusions 100%. It's brilliant. Great study. Interesting. Yeah. I had to laugh at that one. I really did. Yeah. Um, I, I, in general, though, I, I really like this approach because I think that there's many myths, I guess, that go into this assumption of a very violent human past, a, a bloody warlike place to scene. But certainly one of these ideas is the idea that the Darwinian world is a violent world. And so it would be almost like a Darwinian miracle if uh, prehistoric humans would not have been waging war against each other. Yes. And this idea that nature is red in tooth and claw, I guess it's true from the point of view of prey animals sometimes, but uh, whether it's true within species, between individuals of the same species, kind of never really crossed my mind to actually, actually check the numbers. Even if I, I often think of myself as being in the business of correcting many of the nasty suggested implications of Darwinism. But even here, yeah, I, I, I took I took comfort in feeling like we probably I, we probably know pretty much what the data looks like in here, but I really didn't. And I think that this is so important in general also for any attempt at evolutionary psychology, etc., is to to really look at the facts and not just assume that we roughly know what our winning ancestor would have looked like. Yes, and, and this opens up a, a really interesting area. And again, we see the Hobbesian bias. So I think it's worth mentioning explicitly. There's, there's been animal studies 
especially mammalian studies, show this pattern of rather low levels of intraspecies killing, also conspecific species, different terms for the same thing. It just doesn't happen very often as a generalization across all these species. And that to me is the key Darwinian observation, the key biological observation. I, I call it restraint. When you look across species and you see that the overall pattern is for, first of all, very little levels of aggression generally. And when you do see aggression, it probably starts off as non-contact elements, such as displays. That's, you know, one of the terms used to display. You take another specific example, these red deer from some part of the UK. I've never seen a red deer. Maybe you have, maybe up in Scotland. I don't know that detail. But what they'll do to males during the rutting season, they'll start by doing bellowing. So off at some distance, who's got the bigger bellow? And one deer, more often than not, just concedes, okay, you've got the stronger bellow, therefore you're the bigger, stronger deer, so I'll just be on my way and you can mate with this, this female. All right, well, say you've got two rather evenly matched bellows, or you've got somebody, you know, with like an ego issue that really thinks his bellow is bigger than it is. <laughs> then they proceed to, again, non, non-contact display what the, the, anthro- what the uh, biologists call parallel walking. That's just like it sounds. They strut their stuff and look at each other. And again, the, usually it's the smaller deer recognizes, I'm this big, he's that big, goodbye, and out of there. So it's only in the, the, the third level of escalation actually gets to contact. And contact there is actually pretty safe because we know the story, right? Antlers coming together and a pushing, sparring match of antler to antler. Now there's some danger to that. You know, somebody can slip or somebody can be uh, a bit psychotic in the animal world and, and actually cut through, you know, the, the, the neck and, and suffer an artery or perhaps puncture the body of the other individual, gets infected, they die. So there is lethality. It's a risk to engage in that antler push-push contest. And hence, it's the most escalated and the rarest form of competition. Most things can be settled by bellows. Other things can be settled by parallel walking. It's only when you get down to the most uh, equally matched and, you know, high, high stakes here, the ability to mate and pass on your, your genes to the next generation, that it might be worth risking your life. And again, the risks are not huge. We've just talked about the Gomez et al. article. This is averaging out to less than 1% across species for over a thousand different mammalian species. So these types of ritualized contests have evolved in many, many species to because it pays off for the animals involved. It doesn't make sense to risk your life needlessly when you can accomplish what you need to accomplish, you know, food, access to territory, mating, by doing so in a relatively safe way. And it also pays to, to follow the rules. There's a quote I like from a primatologist where he, he notes, and this was using captive, I believe it was rhesus monkeys, which are sort of aggressive well, little, little monkeys as I understand it. And he says that they generally fight when they do fight and they use incisor bites, not canine bites. Canines, of course, are the projecting sharp teeth that can puncture skin and cause damage. But incisor bites are more like little nips that rarely break. But he says if one monkey escalates and starts using the incisors, or sorry, using the canines, the other monkey will do so to defend itself. So there you can get this little arms war going on of, of escalation and fights. But this doesn't happen so often, right? So, so... It can be dangerous, but generally speaking, it's not a fight to the death model. 
Another strategy that you mentioned is not restraint, but avoidance, which is just walking away. Yes. And, and there's two things that come to my mind here. One is just a bit of a speculative observation, but I wonder whether one of the reasons why, at least according to, for example, Pinker's data, the, the, the modern life is significantly less violent than, than life in many eras in the past, might have been because we have so much more possibility of, of avoidance. I mean, we live in such an interconnected and highly densely populated, but very flexible um, social arrangement where, you know, we have a, a personal problem with our boss. Well, we can, hopefully we can just quit. Not everybody can, of course, but, but many of us can. And so I wonder whether that might be, especially in interpersonal violence, maybe even in inter, you know, interstate violence, the fact that there's just so many trading partners Etc. That that uh, often we resolve conflicts by just uh, just turning turning to someone else. Uh, but that's 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 a speculative point. I think the the more rigorous point that I wanted to make was that I don't know if you are aware of a study. There was a study done in two thousand three, I think, by a researcher called Athena Aktipis. Just a fascinating study about the prisoner's dilemma. And without going into the mathematical details, I guess it's fair to say that prisoner's dilemma is kind of supposed to prove that in many situations where it looks like cooperation would be a great idea and everybody will be pretty happy after it, well, the rational thing to do is actually to cheat on the other one and therefore people end up cheating and cooperation is very difficult to, to sustain. Yes. Well, then it emerged, of course, from studies that if you play prisoners' dilemmas repeatedly, well, actually, it might be a good idea to cooperate anyway. So what you should do, for example, is that you cooperate every time, except if the other one cheated with you, and then you cheat the next time with them. So this is called the tit-for-tat strategy. Exactly. But what this paper showed was that if you play prisoner's dilemma in a more realistic setting, which is a board, a kind of board where you can move around, the best strategy was to always cooperate. And if they defect, if your partner defects on you, you just walk away. Interesting. And so I thought this was just a really fascinating finding because what happens is that, you know, you every single time you cooperate, but when you're cheated at, you leave. When somebody defects on you, you leave. And so there's just on this board, there's just these clusters of cooperators that emerge time after time. Then a cheater comes in, breaks the cooperation but doesn't break the cooperation in the way that people become cheaters. They just move away and form new clusters of cooperation. And uh, this paper, I think, is like 20 years old. And I think it had 200, maybe 100 citations or something. And it was one of the papers where when I looked at it, I was like, this, would, this should really have more citations than it has. It's just such a fascinating finding. Um, you always cooperate, but if somebody cheats on you, you walk away and you continue cooperating. And that was the winning strategy. Very interesting. Yeah, after we're done, I'll have to get the reference from you and then, you know, maybe they'll get another citation or two. It makes sense to me. I, and, you know, I just wanted to comment on what you said about avoidance. I've, I've looked cross-culturally or as I read ethnography, I, I'm, I'm really convinced that every human society has many people practicing avoidance all the time. It's just what we do. You know, it, it rings true if you think about your mm -hmm. own lives. Yeah. And then as you start reading ethnographies. And I'm sure you've read this as well. You know, the classic description of nomadic foragers is they vote with their feet. So about just a whole variety of, of conflicts, just pack up and go somewhere else. And this is part of their overall, you know, social structural arrangement of people constantly shifting around and moving from one band to the next. 
or from one camp to, to the next. That's just how they do it, which has an implication by the way, for the whole idea of warfare, like we were talking about. And so the idea of having war is, well, why would we make war with that group? Because my sister is over there. Why would they make war with us? Because, you know, somebody's brother, somebody's father, somebody's good friend. And another one is, okay, so what are you going to actually fight over? They, they don't have booty. They don't have wealth. They don't have stored food. So it's, it's again, one of, I think I, I came up with Patrick. We came up with nine different reasons why war makes no sense. If you look at how these groups actually are, it's just ludicrous to start thinking that one little group is permanent and therefore shut off and would war with another little group. That's not what's going on at all. Well, let's zoom for a moment into that question of being much more interconnected than people might realize. So it seems to be that it's a myth that there are these small groups of 20 people wandering in the, during the ice age. And when they meet another group of 20 people, they are immediately hostile to each other. Um, and that's an important myth to bust. But what about ethno-linguistic groups? I mean, the pushback from people in the more Hobbesian side, I think, is that they would say, yes, it's not true that the bands are fighting against other bands, um, but it's that there are these groups, maybe 2,000 people or so, um, who speak the same language, you have the same customs, which is sorted into these small bands, which do intermingle all the time. But that problems emerge when these ethno-linguistic groups meet other ethno-linguistic groups. That's when you get into this dynamic of all oh, their barbarians and, 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 and they're not like us and, 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 and then fighting ensues. I've, I've even heard people say that in Australia, you have many uh, recorded examples of this kind of interaction. So uh, what's your take? Again, unfortunately, a lot of presumptions, I think, that don't necessarily match the data. And also a big caveat here is that, you know, the behavior and the languages of the Pleistocene have not fossilized, so we can make our best guesses. But well, one indication that there's something wrong with this is to realize that there are the same basic toolkits that have spanned entire continents, basically. For North America, it's this Clovis point. And you start then reasoning backwards as to, well, how can this same type of tool be literally across North America? I'm not thinking of the, the name, but there's a similar type of toolkit for much of Europe and into Asia. And then you mentioned Australia. One of the things is that there's differences, different dialects and different languages, but the overall patterns of culture across all of Australia are remarkably consistent in terms of their religious beliefs and, and a variety of other beliefs. So it's, there's clearly been a great deal of, of transport of people over time, that interaction among these different groups, even across the whole continent of Australia. I guess the, this really gets into one of the issues that most frustrates me when digging into this literature around nomadic hunter-gatherers and warfare, is that whenever I read an article from someone like you, from Brian Ferguson, etc., there's plenty of great anecdotes about hunter-gatherers living peacefully. But then when I read an article from the war forever back camp, well, they have a lot of great anecdotes about um, hunter-gatherers waging brutal warfare. And sometimes it's the same people. I mean, the, I think the Andamanese islanders are used, I think, by both sides as an example of what they are arguing for. And so, first of all, it seems to be very difficult to know, even within one group, what is actually going on. And then this relates to a much broader question of, is there so much unity really across 
say nomadic hunter-gatherer groups even, that there is any general laws that we can learn from studying one of them. Um, so, for example, with the science paper that we discussed earlier, the one with, that you wrote with Patrick Soderberg, if I remember correctly, it was that one third of societies had some intergroup violence, not necessarily war, but some violence between groups. One third of the groups didn't have intergroup violence, but had violence within the group quite a lot, and like interpersonal violence, for example. And then there was one third who were very peaceful overall. I'm not sure if I get that exactly right, but if it was anything along those lines, I just feel like it it speaks to this kind of variation we find between hunter-gatherers. And if there is a lot of variation, then what exactly are we claiming? Is the claim that no, not all hunter-gatherer bands were constantly waging war against every single other band? Is the claim that none of them were ever waging war? What exactly is the argument? And uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, if I was wrong about the representation of your article, but also the more general question, how strong of a claim are you willing to make about the lack, absence of warfare in the human past, in the Pleistocene? Yeah, so we're jumping from foragers now in that study to the Pleistocene, which is a good implication. But if we could come back to that in just a second it, and, and first talk a little bit about the findings. So basically what I've argued, and in this article, Patrick and I have, have looked at the data and reached our conclusions, is that we're looking at lethal aggression. And so we didn't really define homicide, accidental killings, manslaughter, for example, feuding um, and war before doing it. And the reason we did that is because when I earlier attempted to talk about the war means this and feuding means that and looked at it this way, I got a lot of criticism from the Hobbesian point of view that basically I'm, I'm defining war out of existence. Yes. And so that was the main purpose is to take on this definitional issue and say, Okay, let's just look at the dead bodies and how they ended up to be dead bodies and who killed them, in other words, and how many people killed them and what were the circumstances and what were the reasons and were they in the same group or they were in a different group or were they in the same culture area or were they like outsiders, missionaries coming in or what have you. Let's really look at all this stuff. And so that's what we, we did. And, and I think the um, main real conclusion, either looking ethnographically or, or looking in this particular study, is that Warfare is a group-on-group -group phenomenon that involves members of different communities and involves lethality. Believe it or not, some people define war without there being lethality. That's crazy to me. That's really pretty rare among forager groups, nomadic forager groups. It just doesn't happen very much in this ethnographic sample. So how many of the 21 societies would have had some instances of warfare? Well, as, as I alluded to before, you, you catch maybe all or at least most of the actual war events, when you look at the Hadza people from East Africa as a group fighting with intent to kill groups of, of herders and vice versa. And there being, it, it's, it's unclear from the descriptions exactly how many bodies you end up with, but the descriptions are conveying that there's multiple deaths. You know, it, it gets frustrating with the data just yes. as a side point that not everything is described to the level of detail that you wish it was, but like I say, we, we put the data there so people can look at it themselves. But in any case, we, we reached our best assessment. These are incidences of what we would label war after the fact. But in fact, most of these incidences were very interpersonal. Classic, I mean, the, I, I, the way I describe it is there's sort of like two main reasons, the usual reasons. One is to get a woman back or to fight over a woman. And I, I know that sounds very uh, male-oriented. Much of the ethnography is written that way. It's often the women's choice that she wants to 
leave this guy and run off with this guy. But whatever the case, there's a camp, some other people show up, all of a sudden somebody's wife has gone off with somebody else. Husband is very upset, says to his two brothers, come on, let's get that scoundrel. Off they go. Maybe the husband is killed. Maybe one of his assistants, you know, supporters is killed, or maybe the person who ran off with the wife gets killed. Different scenarios. Usually nobody's killed. I should be real clear on, but this is one of the scenarios. I just, just call it over a woman. And the other one is you're seeking revenge for some sort of killing or misdemeanor. And that catches almost all of these incidences. So when you say, is there, how many did not have war? One, another way to look at this, we give a table where it's 10 out of 21 societies had absolutely no instances of group on group aggression. So we could say right there, that's, that's, you know, 40 something percent high, almost 50% of clearly it's not war because there's no instances of group on group. So anyway, it's, it's it, it can get a little bit messy as to how you count and what you put. I don't know if that, did, did you get a good answer out yeah, of Yeah, yeah, it did. I mean, I think the more difficult question is that obviously any jump from current day foragers to the Pleistocene is a difficult jump, but I guess it is the jump that motivates all of these studies on, on both sides. Uh, when we are talking about the origins of war, I guess the question then is that given that we do see differences between modern day foragers, and everybody agrees that we do see differences, you have the more violent ones like the TV, and then you have the more peaceful ones. What do we make of this? Are some of them better kind of windows to the past than others? I mean, so for example, Christopher Bone, uh, has a sample of so-called late Pleistocene appropriate hunter-gatherers, so groups that we can think of as the best possible windows to the past. And many of them are very peaceful and, and not at all warlike. But there were some Inuit groups, I can't remember actually the, the, the name of this, but there was one particular Inuit group that was exceedingly violent and warlike. That's a great example, actually. And there's a good chapter on Inuit in, in an edited book by Darwin and Darwin, the husband and wife, Keith. And what they point out is this, this group that keeps being mentioned and, and cited over and over, basically an ethnography by a fellow named Burke about how warlike they are. It's, it's one particular Inuit group in the Northwest coast of Alaska. And if you look at all 11 other Inuit groups spread across North America and into Greenland, they tend not to be warfare. They're even noted for being non-warring. So again, there's unfortunately quite a lot of distortion and and monkey business going on here. If you just pick this particular group and talk about how aggressive they are and how warlike they are, give those ethnographies, those ethnographic descriptions you were talking about in your question as to just how brutal they are, and then imply that this is the Inuit. And how could those other anthropologists be so foolish as to claim that Inuit don't war? Well, this is where it gets really interesting. That group that is more warlike, they're different. They're starting to show signs of complexity. Yeah. How, how are they different? How would you have predicted that these are the ones who are going to be waging war? Well, they've made a shift over to hunting large sea mammals and using teams of, of guys going out in boats with harpoons and it's a risky business, but because they're relying on, on large mammals that, that they're able to support a larger population. And then you, you see these elements of complexity that we touched upon earlier coming in for their society which are basically absent or undeveloped in the uh, Inuit groups further to the east as you move across all of North America and into Greenland. Those have a different subsistence base, which is much more individually focused. So the groups to the east that are not warlike, yeah, they, they have homicides, they have revenge homicides. They're not pacific, they're not peaceful, there's some killings, but it's not warfare. 
However, the, the group that is always getting the attention, they've actually developed what the ethnographer Burke calls nations. So they have territorial areas where they are from that area and those nations engage in uh, group on group warfare fighting with each other. So it's, it's an intriguing case, which again, fits the more general model of when you get changes in how people are subsisting and increasing population by settling down into territories, that's really different. And that's really fascinating and interesting. And it tells us a lot. So it's really, you know, excuse me, colleagues, but it's, it's really simplistic to just look across 12 different groups, pick the one that's really aggressive and just say, look at how aggressive they are, ignore the other 11. Now, or in fact, imply the other 11 must also be like that. Mm, mm. It's not good science, to be honest. Hmm. Hmm. I think this is a good moment to ask the question that I've most wanted to ask from you, perhaps, which is how much does this matter? How much does the origins of war, the level of war in the human past matter for peace in our times? And I there's two sub-questions to that. You've been a critical of other scholars who conflate violence with war, but I've made the same exact mistake today. It's easy to make while talking to you. We talked about how there was no war in the, these people. And then in the next sentence, I'm saying something like, oh, so these people didn't have a lot of violence. Like it happens easily. And assuming that, yes, war maybe has a beginning, but violence does not. Is that a big deal? Some people would even say that, well, there's something more beautiful about, you know, a, a band of brothers marching to war for a cause that they care about and sacrifice for one another rather than a, you know, a guy getting revenge because his girlfriend left with another guy and, and shooting them in the night. So uh, there is a way to look at it where it's actually, you know, almost bad news. Like, that's not what we want humans to be doing. You know, there's something more beautiful about a, a, a communal war effort for what we believe. So uh, what's your take on that? How much does it matter if these people were killing each other due to war or due to other reasons? Well, I think for me, at least, you know, my, my take on this is it matters a great deal because when current day politicians, leaders, or just people out there in society use this argument as a rationale or prop for engaging in military action, warfare, that's really bad. You know, it becomes a mechanism of propaganda in a way, or more generally just a belief system, a Hobbesian belief system, which is supportive of engaging in war. So the reasoning, you know, basically is if there's always been war and always will be war, there's not much point in doing anything to try to prevent a war or to do something differently. It's in our nature. What can we say? It's regrettable, but that's just the nature of the beast. So it can have real political consequences. So I think there's a very real world important significance to finding out what really is the nature mm -hmm. of humanity regarding aggression and warfare. Yeah, I guess interpersonal violence does not escalate to a nuclear war. So that's one of the differences. It may feel that way if you're involved with it, but it, <laughs> yes. the species is not involved. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But before we go into the second sub-question of the does this matter issue, maybe let's just dwell one more moment on the question of violence in general. So assuming that there was no war, but there was interpersonal violence in the human place to sin, how much, how violent was the human past? I, I can't put, I can't put numbers or stats on it, but I don't think particularly aggressive, but again, you know, let, let, let's try to frame this 
we have the, the, the data sort of a benchmark that the expected number of killings per hundred would be two for homo sapiens as a primate, a member of the primate species. So maybe that's a rough guide and sort of a theoretical point. But then if we look at a, a nice study by Hobbes and Pisatelli, for instance, published in War, Peace, and Human Nature, they looked at, I, I believe it was 3,000 um, different skeletons, all of them older than 10,000 years ago, so catching the right time frame. From around the world, they looked at, at thousands of skeletons um, across 400 some different sites scattered around the world, and they list like four instances showing violence. So that gives us some, some percentage, you know, some rough gauge on this from the evidence. If you actually look at all these skeletons older than 10,000 years ago, you find relatively few cases of, of physical violence resulting uh, from that sample. Well, then going to the other sub-question in the question, does this matter? There is an easy way, I think, to read this in a surprisingly negative way. Because if we say that there's no war in mobile hunter-gatherers, in nomadic foragers, and then we find that whenever there starts to be complexification, whenever there starts to be hoard resources, whenever there starts to be population pressure, that's when you start having war. Well, that's bad news for us, you know, living in a densely populated world and with an extreme level of social complexity, etc. Now, I wouldn't necessarily draw the conclusion that, okay, therefore war is inevitable in our society. But one could say at least that, you know, everything we've been talking about is nice prehistory, nice archaeology. Okay, fair enough. But it doesn't change anything about the fact that whenever you start having social complexities such as we do, you start having war. Bad news. So what do you think about that? Well, well first of all, it's a, I would say it's a statistical prediction, not an absolute prediction. One counterpoint is... When you look at the Kodiak exam, the Kodiak Island example of the progression that they managed to go, I think it was a couple thousand years without war, but then war did come in. So there can be variable time links here and other factors. Another cool example that Brian Ferguson came up with from his, one of his two chapters in War, Peace and Human Nature is that he found in the Southern Levant population, an area that stayed without war for 10,000 years. And so. You know, Les Sponsel, among others, have pointed out that states tend to make war, but not all states make war all the time. So it's not so sealed that this is an inevitable progression. And, and then more generally, I mean, some of our most recent work has to do with the peace system. So I'll slip that in there as, as well. It's fully possible for groups of societies, neighboring societies, to give up war. And this is, I, I, sh I sent you a short film. I don't know if you had a chance to look at it. But if it's okay, I'll, I'll plug it right here. It's a, a short film on peace systems and then a link back to our more scholarly article on that same topic from 2021. Peace systems are clusters of neighboring societies that don't make war with each other. And there's various examples of them from anthropology and history in current day politics, including the Nordic countries. The five Nordic countries have not warred in over 200 years. And of course, the EU doesn't have quite as long a time frame. But the whole thing was founded as a regional system to prevent future wars in Europe. And there's various other examples. So I guess what I'm saying is we can never discount human agency and human ability to create non-warring systems. We have that potential as well. And one of the reasons you say, why is this important? If we're all just stuck in a perennial mindset 
that there always has been war and always will be war, Hobbesian view of things, it creates an atmosphere of pessimism and it creates a feeling that what's the point of even trying to create a peace system or trying to create a different way of interacting internationally or regionally, whatever you're talking about, or even within a nation that would discount and just abolish the ideas acceptable that we would engage in armed conflict with each other. So it opens up the possibility, basically. Well, I guess that we are approaching the end of time. Thank you already for this incredibly clarifying and superbly interesting conversation. Uh, before we end, Professor Fry, based on your research, based on your worldview, what kind of animals are we? We're mammals. And what does that mean, right? What does that mean? I asked my class last fall, jokingly, I said, how often do you just wake up in the morning and say, I'm a mammal? <laughs> and of course they looked at me in a crazy way. But then we discussed this a little bit. We really are mammals. And by that, we care for our young. We have this restraint against aggression. And particularly humans are very social animals, social mammals. We could not exist um, without the care and the cooperation of others. So again, this is a point made by anthropologists over decades, but I don't think fully appreciated. Humans are born in such a state of weakness and dependencies. We, we all need somebody caring for us to our first early years of life, right? We absolutely could not make it on this planet without others. And research has been coming out more and more about the cooperative nature of childcare, for instance, alloparenting, all of these, these good things. Sarah Blatt-Favarty is a person who's written Mothers and Others. It's a great book. It sort of plays on this theme very much. I, I like to look at, at humans in this context of, of being mammals, being a social species, and also being extremely flexible. That's part of the long dependency, the long period of learning. That's another critical feature of humanity. So when we have this, it creates a, a paradox for us. We can learn so much. We can learn different things. And this loops back in my view, just to this topic we're talking about of warfare, we can learn to be totally peaceful, or we can learn that, that war is the most important thing in life. And it's because we have these large brains and we have a long periods of socialization. We have culture that gives us this, this flexibility to our human nature. So there comes the, the curse as, as well as the gift. Douglas Fry, thank you very much for taking the time. You're more than welcome. I enjoyed myself, so it's, it's a plus all around. And thank you for listening to this episode till the very end. If you enjoyed it, please consider thinking of a friend or a family member who might like it too. You can either share it with them directly or just bring it up next time you meet. And also do consider subscribing to the On Humans podcast if you have not done so yet. This way you'll be notified of future episodes such as one coming up with the anthropologist Vivek B. Penkataraman, someone who has lived with the modern-day hunter-gatherers and written very clarifying pieces about what exactly do these experiences tell and what do they not tell about the human past. Thank you as always for listening. Until next time, take care.